So Lord, I pray that as we, as we look at this, the scripture today, Lord, that your grace that we've been talking about would enable us to see differently, Lord. Lord God, you said that we are seated with you in heavenly places, Lord. That's just a whole new perspective. And I want to pray that as each person here today is hearing the word, Lord God, that it would change their perspective about where their life is and how they live. Lord, I just pray that you would bless us with an understanding of who you are, with an understanding of how, how we can live in the fullness of what you want for us. Lord, everything that was spoken about during communion today, Lord God, let that become a reality, that all the price you paid is fully realized in our lives, Lord God, that we live the life you bought for us. We live the freedom you bought for us, the generosity you bought for us, the effectiveness, the significance you bought for us, Lord God. Let it be obvious in every part of our lives. That's who we want to be, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Amen and amen and amen. So, I'm going to be starting the series off with a, a story from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. But in order to do that, I just want to, I want to kind of fill you in on where, where we find that story. So, you know how Israel at one stage was in slavery in Egypt. So, we read about it at the end of the... Um, the book of Genesis, how they went to Egypt and they were, they were housed in Egypt. And then over the years, how instead of just being kind of visitors in Egypt, they became slaves in Egypt. And they had developed into this great nation within Egypt, but, but were nonetheless enslaved. And wow. you will have read the book of Exodus and you will have heard the incredible stories of how God brought Israel out of Egypt. The miraculous things that happened, those, those plagues that came upon the Egyptians that each plague kind of undermined one of the gods of Egypt. And finally, God displayed himself glorious to the Egyptians and said, let my people go. And under Moses, this mass exodus happened out of Egypt. You may not know it, but the Bible talks about in Exodus 12 that the people who left there, there were 600,000 men alone. That's apart from the children and women. That's I mean, right. can you imagine leading that crowd? You know, when, you, when they got to the Red Sea and the Red Sea parted, you know, and it talks about how, how they went through that for hours and hours and hours. And I often wondered that, what were they working, walking really slowly? I mean, how, why did it take them so long to get across that sea? But then when I realized 600,000 men alone, yeah. I mean, that's... That's like, a, that's like a city exactly. walking across that sea. I mean, that's a lot of people. It's 1,000, I mean, 1, 200,000 adults probably at a minimum. Yeah. And you know what? Those people were having babies. We, we know about it, that, that the, the Egyptians couldn't stop them having babies. It says the, the, mid, the midwives didn't even get to the people, the Israelites, before the, they popped out their babies. So I mean, we know there were, there were children around, lots and lots of children. So this must have been the most incredible thing. And Israel, as they came out of Egypt, this mass of people, they walked into the desert. And the Bible says they, they walked for a certain amount of time and they came to the Mount of Sinai, Mount Sinai. And there Moses went up. This mountain had this encounter with God and it says everything shook and the cloud came down and there was fire and he came down from this mountain with the law. 
They had come out of Egypt and now God was saying, okay, I've rescued you and now this is how you must live. This is how you must live. At the same time as bringing the law to the people, Moses brought the plans, the blueprint for a magnificent place of worship. We've spoken about this before, but it is is one of the themes of the Bible that needs to be reiterated is that, that God's plan from the beginning was that God would live with mankind. That God's presence with his people was one of his primary objectives. He came to walk in the cool of the evening with Adam. And now when all of Israel is in the desert, he sets out a plan that he can live with them. And he gives them the design for this magnificent tabernacle. The tabernacle of Moses, which was a tent. But, but not just any tent. It was lined with gold. Everything was covered in gold. They used over four tons of gold in the making of this tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant was covered in gold. They had um, bronze basins. They had silver, bronze, and gold just everywhere. It's estimated that the worth of this tabernacle in modern-day standards would be over $53 million dollars. And, and this magnificent tabernacle was so beautifully designed that they could break it down and they could walk through the wilderness and set it up in a matter of hours and, and camp again. It was just, it was a feat of engineering, but at the same time, just a feat of beauty. Yes. Absolute beauty. What I think about when I think about this tabernacle, I think about... A band of slaves, not a band of slaves, a mass of slaves leaving a nation. Slaves who had no possessions, no official possessions in a nation come out and they build a traveling tabernacle worth $53 million. Can Can you just sit for a moment and think about this? Slaves who officially have nothing come before God and in their act of worship, they create a magnificent dwelling for God worth $53 million. I'm telling you this, there was not a temple in Egypt that was worth that much. How? Well, we know that, that the Egyptians were so horrified when Israel left, that they gave them their wealth. But nonetheless, this is what it speaks to me. There is always enough to do what God has called you to do. You know, I I don't know where your life is. I don't know how you live. I don't know what your struggles are. But let me tell you, if God asks you to do something, there will be enough. Now, the wild thing about this is that This tabernacle wasn't built because Moses just had a great big bank balance. You know, it wasn't built out of his personal coffers. It was built because every single Israelite dug deep and said, what do I have? And they put it on the table. Every single one, from the least to the greatest, said, I'm giving. To the point where Moses eventually had to say, stop bringing stuff. We have enough. 
We can't have any more of your wealth. Can you imagine this? That means they brought $53 million worth and more. Because everyone said, this is my tabernacle. This is my nation. This is my God. This is the God who rescued me. And therefore, I am going to put what I have on the table. What can we build? What can we build if everyone puts their stuff on the table? Guys, I really want to ask you that. What could this ragtag bunch of magnificent people in this room, what could we build if everyone said, this is my church, this is my vision, this is my place, this is my building, this is my, my um, did I say mission already? This is, this is mine. Come on. This is my place where I identify the presence of God. This is my place where my friends come to receive God. What could we do if we all put our stuff on the table? Yeah, good. Good. I want to read a portion of scripture from Exodus, Exodus 31. And this is when Moses has already got the plan and he started sharing about how this tabernacle is going to look and how they're going to build everything and what they're going to put in place. And then he starts in verse 1, he says, The Lord said to Moses, See, I have called by name Bezalel. Can you turn to your neighbor and say Bezalel? Great. That's not a name you're going to name your child. I understand that. (laughs) See, I've called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur of the tribe of Judah. And I filled him with the Spirit of God, with ability and intelligence, with knowledge and all craftsmanship, to devise artistic designs, to work in gold, silver, and bronze, in cutting stones for setting and in carving wood, to work in every craft. And behold, I have appointed with him a holy ab. This is going to be your second child. Turn to your neighbor and say, a holy ab. A holy ab. A holy ab and Bezalel, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have given to all able men ability that they may make all that I have commanded you. The tent of meeting and the ark of the testimony and the mercy seat that is on it and all the furnishings on the tent, the table and its utensils and the pure lampstand with all its utensils and the altar of incense and the altar of burnt offering with all its utensils and the basin and its stand and the finely worked garments, the holy garments for Aaron, the priests and the garments of his son for their service as priest and the anointing oil and the fragrant incense for the holy place according to all that I've commanded you, they shall do. Bezalel and Aholiab. If you remember those names, you're really a Bible scholar. You've got it down. Bezalel and Aholiab. You know what I, when I think of this, we never hear about these guys really again and up to this point. I mean, that's why you, you kind of like to struggle with those names a lot because they're not common names that we, we hear in Bible preaching. Because this is the only time these guys appear, is when they were building the tabernacle. You know, I I wonder how they grew up amongst this this group of 1,200,000 people. Did did they think of themselves as important? Did they think of themselves as having a place? You know, they're probably teased for their names. 
They probably, they probably, you know, battled to find a sense of identity. And here at this moment, here at this moment, this is what the Bible says. I love it. It says, Bezalel, I have called him by name. What does that mean? You know, my dad, when we were young, he, we, he had three girls, and we were quite energetic girls. And when we went places, we loved to explore, and we would just head out into the, into the environment and, and kind of have fun. And he had devised the system of not losing us. It's, you know, if you're parents, one of the things you should always strive to maintain is not losing your children. So he, he had devised this plan of not losing us. And the plan went like this. He had developed this exact whistle that was unique to my dad. And no matter where we were, if we heard that whistle, we knew, get back to dad. He, he trained us well because the first few times he gave us sweets when we came. And then afterwards, you know, it was like that, that we were, it was in train, trained in our minds, like when that whistle happens, get back to dad. So, so this is how he called, like if we were out on the beach and he was like wanting to know we're all safe, he would do that whistle and we'd all come running, yeah, yeah, count us, one, two, three, everyone's here, okay, off you go. <laughs> and you know, I think, I think to some degree, God has that kind of call on all of us. You know, the, the Bible rings out that kind of whistle. It tells you that we are to make disciples of all nations. It tells us we're part of a holy nation, a royal priesthood. It gives us a calling and identity. We're part of the family. This is who we are. You know, there's, there's kind of like a, a trumpet call that the Bible gives. We all call to something great. But there were times when my dad would call. He didn't call me Carol. He called me Carrie. And he would call out, Carrie, come here. Carrie. And you know, when he called that, it was a whole nother ball game. Then he wasn't just checking up on us. He wasn't just making sure that we hadn't killed ourselves or killed each other or killed another person. You know, he, he wasn't just checking up on that. He was, he was calling me. He was calling me by name. And when he did that, I knew there was something great coming. I knew that he was either going to sit down and teach me something or he was going to, he was going to work with me or he's going to, I don't know if there was a dress involved or, you know, it was something beautiful. And I, it immediately called out something in me. I was my dad's daughter. I belonged. Yeah. Here's the thing. I was significant. I wasn't just one of the crowd. Yeah. I just wasn't one of the family. I mattered. Who I was, was important. And at this moment when God is saying, Bezalel, I've called him by name. I feel like to each and every life here this morning, I want you to hear that very thing. Tembi, I've called you by name. Mark, I've called you by name. I want you, I want you to hear that there's not only a general call, but there's something so specific to each and every one of you. That when God wove you together in your mother's womb, he wasn't just, ah, let's just, let's just try this random mix of genes and see what happens. That when he started, he had something in mind. Yeah. And you are that. Yeah. And that your gifts and graces are perfectly tuned to the significant thing he wants you to do. Candace, I've called you. By name. Ikram, I've called you by name. 
everyone here, I, I, almost, I almost want to take a moment. And I want you to hear the voice of your heavenly Father saying, I've called you by name. You're not here by accident. You're not here by accident. I just, I just sense the presence of God right now speaking to many hearts. So many of you have felt lost in the mass of problems that your family faces. You've, you felt lost in the workplace where there are just so many of you and you're just, just one of the crowd. You feel lost in your environment because you weren't sure what you were called to do. And yet right now, the Spirit of the living God saying, there is no mistake. There is no mistake. Who you are is important to me. Who you are, the way you are, is important to me. The book of Exodus spends chapters upon chapters talking about the priests and what they're supposed to do and how they're supposed to do it. It spends chapters and chapters talking about the different tribes, where they meant to sit and camp and how they meant to do it. There's an entire book, Leviticus, just on the duties of the priests. It would be easy in that environment to have thought that you didn't count if you weren't one of them. And here, randomly in the middle, God says to Moses, Bezalel, I have called by name. Aholiab, I have said he has a job. These are my men. These are my people. There's a parable in Luke. It's actually Luke 15, so I don't know why that says Luke 13. Please forgive me. Luke 15, verse 6. And it says, it talks about how the sh a shepherd having a hundred sheep, if he notices one is missing, what will he do? It says, he will go out and he will leave the 99 to find that one. And verse 6 says this, and when he comes home, he calls together his, his friends and his neighbors, saying to them, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. What does that mean? I mean, there was a time you didn't know God, and he left the 99 to find you. You know, we often identify, here we are with the 99. Oh, darn, Jesus is leaving, leaving us to go and find all those ones. But he went to find you. Why? Because he's called you by name. Because you're his. Because your life is significant. He made you for a reason. And he's unwilling to leave that reason undone. He's unwilling to leave your life unmade, unpurposeful. He's unwilling to leave you in the desert, in the wilderness. He came to find you. Because you matter. Who you are is important. This is so important for us to get. That you're not just a pew warmer. You're not just coming to church because it's the right thing to do. You're coming to church because we have a giant, enormous, incredible mission. And you are an important part of it. Right. Together we are building a tabernacle of 53 million and the rest. And it may not be a physical place, but it's, it's a, a monument to the glory of Jesus. It's a, a way of his name being made famous in the city. Come on. And you matter. You being here today is, is of utmost importance. You putting your stuff on the table, your resources on the table, your skills on the table is of utmost 
importance. Numbers 12, verse 15, and I do have that reference right. Numbers 12, verse 15, tells such an interesting story. It's kind of like a horrifying story and a good story all at the same time. You know those stories in the Bible that make you scratch your head and wonder. But what happened is that at one stage, Moses, leading this giant troop, has, two, has a brother and a sister. And as happens in families, there's a little bit of a squabble. And his brother and sister, Aaron and Miriam, decide, who is this Moses guy? Listen, we, we hear from God. We could lead this thing. And besides, have you seen that woman he married? And they are so mad about his wife. Guys, guys are, we to, do, are, we all, are we all understanding family here? I mean, you all have these stories. So this happens, this family squabble right in the middle of the Bible. And God comes down in power and he says, Who are you to speak against my son Moses? And when the presence of God lifts up, Miriam is covered in leprosy. I mean, how about a judgment like that? Wouldn't you like that to happen at some of your family squabbles, you know? Just like, everything sorted, you're the problem. I know you've all, you, you're going to go home and pray for hours. Lord Jesus, please come do this. Yeah, or next time you have a family squabble, you're going to make sure you're right in every way before you go into that family squabble. But here's the thing that makes me want to cry every time I read that story. I mean, Miriam was clearly wrong. I mean, she was just clearly wrong. She, she had jealousy issues. She probably had significance issues. She didn't know that she was called by name. She didn't know how significant she was just as she was. It was like, I have to be like Moses to be worth something. I mean, she, she had problems. But Miriam, because the, the practice with leprosy then was you had to be put out of the camp, otherwise you're going to affect, infect everyone. So she was put outside of the camp. Yes, I mean... Here is this giant nation of 1.2 plus people, million people, stopped in their journey to the promised land. And the Bible said they did not move for seven days until Miriam was brought back from outside the camp. I mean, she'd messed up big time, but God just stopped the whole thing. Yes, she's messed up. Yes, she's going to deal with the consequences, but we're not going anywhere till Miriam's back. We're not moving a step until Miriam's back. Do you know, even now I want to cry. You know, I want to, I want to propose this to you, that there are things God won't let this, this church do until you are in place. I want to propose to you that there are places we will not go Unless you are in the camp. I mean, think about that. Think about that. This entire nation waited until she and God had done their dealings and she could come back in restored. That's 
Acts 2 verse 47, it's just brilliant, brilliant verse. It says this, and the Lord added to their number day by day those who are being saved. I mean, spectacular. Every day, people were getting saved in the early church. I mean, magnificent. But here's the thing. It says, the Lord added to their number. You know, that is so important and significant because it means people weren't just choosing to be a part of the church. They weren't saying, oh, this looks like a nice thing. I'll just be a part. Jesus was saying, you, you're called, come, I'm adding you to the church. Singy, this church cannot be what it's meant to be until you come, come. So he, he was literally adding people to the church. Listen to this. You don't choose your church. Shock. You don't choose your church. God chooses it for you. And you just say yes. And you're there till God says no, which hopefully is never. But here's the thing. God adds you to a church because he needs you in that church. Without you there, that church will not be the church he meant it to be. God adds you to the church. He filled them with the spirit and ability. How cool is that? How cool is that? How many of you have sat across a coffee table in a coffee shop with a friend who you were hoping to tell a little bit about Jesus and they asked a question and you had words come out of your mouth that you thought, oh my word, I should be the next T.D. Jakes. <laughs> I mean, it's like, it's like you were saying things, you were saying things that you were like, I wish there was a crowd of 10,000 right here, right now, because this... Everyone needs to hear. How many of you have experienced that? You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, and then you go home and you try and tell your spouse about it. And, and you try and tell me how, how glorious those words were. And, and they look at you like, what? You said that? You said, well, it sounded better when I said it there. It's because the spirit of the living God filled you with ability. And here's the glorious thing. You can expect that every time. So, so my thinking of is, if I want, thinking goes like this, if I want to look good, I should get about the Lord's business all the time because he's going to make it work. I'm going to look better than I've ever looked before when I'm doing God's stuff. Because he watches over his mission. And that means when you're about the Lord's business, you're going to look better than when you're about anything else. Come, let's be a little bit honest here. All of us want people to think we, you know, gosh, this is a, this is a fantastic person, you know. Maybe we shouldn't, I don't know, but I feel like as humans, we, we all have that. And, and when you're doing God's stuff, that's what happens. People see his glory more than they see you. Get about the stuff of the kingdom. Come on. And you'll be filled with the spirit and ability. What I love is he took their natural ability and he breathed into them and made it kingdom worthy. Kingdom worthy. And I just really want to say to you, no matter what you put your hand to on a daily basis, 
If you turn that ordinary everyday work into kingdom work, this is what you get. If you turn your service within this church to kingdom work, not just, oh my gosh, they did a volunteer Sunday and I had to sign up because everyone else was and I just, I didn't want to look like the odd one out. When you turn that, that moment of service to the Lord into kingdom business, it, it becomes something great. It becomes something glorious. Ephesians 3, Paul prays this magnificent prayer for the Ephesians, and he's prayed all along, and he ends the prayer with this, that, that you would be strengthened with power through God's Spirit in your inner being, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Guys, just think about that for a moment. God's not, God's not just offering you a drop. He's not just saying, ah, oh, a little bit, little bit of my presence, a little bit of my ability, a little bit, you know, just, just, just enough to get you by. I mean, he he's wants to come bring all his fullness. Come on. I propose that not one of us here have even begin, begun to tap the depths of what he will do when we obey him. Yeah, that's right. You want to see the great exploits of Jesus? Take a risk in obedience to him. Step out and do what he's called you to do. Follow those prompt and lead, prompts and leadings in your heart. Turn what you do into kingdom business and see what he will do. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Four Loves, says this. In each of my friends, there's something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I'm not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I, I want other lights that my own, than my own to show all his facets. What does that mean? It means when it's just you about the business of the kingdom, we see, we see a little bit of God's glory. But when, when it's all of us together, your interactions with Mike bring out something unique in you that would not have been shown had you not interacted with Mike. Yeah. Your interactions with that fellow Connect Group member bring out something in you that would not be seen before. You know, I want to say this, that the majority of people don't know themselves. I would, I would say this, that, that I would not have known that I have organizational ability unless I had not volunteered to serve in Children's Church. I felt like serving in children's church brought something out of me that I didn't know was there. You know, how many of you have worked in children's church? It brings stuff out of you. You will know that. The worship team, can I have an amen? There was stuff you didn't know you could do until you were part of this. We cannot even fully know ourselves until we're in a community, until we're working towards a common goal, until we're spurring one another on, until we're calling out from one another the greatness that is in there. They were called by name, filled with his spirit and, and with ability to do a great work for the church, 
to do great works for the church. They didn't, they didn't call it church then, but it's the equivalent of what church is to here today. 1 Peter 2 verse 5 says this, You yourself, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This great desire of God to live with His people is manifested in us. And here's the wild thing, is that we are the church. We are the living stones. You know what? You can't, you can't look at what we are doing and say, I wonder when they are going to get it done. I wonder when they are going to buy that building. I wonder when they are going to get the children's church right. I wonder when they are going to get the sound right. We are the church. It's when are we going to get the sound right? When are we going to get this right? When are we? Guys, this is us. Like I said, there are things in this church that will not get done until you put your hand up and say yes. Because we are the church. This is us. This is us. Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said this, And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. There's so much to say about that verse. I just want to say this, is that we are the church. Sorry, I keep on forgetting which way to go. We are the church. And we are unstoppable. Yeah. The gates of hell will not prevail against us. All it takes is that we are the church. We all show up to be the church. We stand shoulder to shoulder and we do not let the circumstances dictate who we are and what we will do. We are the church and we are unstoppable. Ian Bounds said this. He said, what the church needs today is not more machinery or better, not, uh, not more machinery or better, not new organizations or more and novel method, methods, but people whom the Holy Ghost can use. Yeah. People are God's method. We are looking for better methods. God is looking for better people. Yeah, good. Yeah, good. I'm here to tell you that you're a bigger person than you thought you were. Yes. There is more in you than you thought you had. I'm here to tell you that this is your mission. This is your vision. We are the church and we are unstoppable. And as we each put our stuff on the table, our abilities, our resources, our heart on the table, there is nothing that we will not accomplish. Amen. Amen. In conclusion, God has called you by name, placed you in his body, and filled you with his spirit and ability in order for you to do a good work as the church. Amen. Can we give the Lord a hand? Yeah. Good work.